Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome to the New Books Network, Genocide Studies. My name is uh, Christopher P. Davey. I'm the Charles E. Scheidt Visiting Assistant Professor of Genocide Studies and Prevention at the Strath Centre for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Clark University. Uh, I have the privilege to have with me today uh, Dr. Hikmet uh, Karsic. Uh, Hikmet is a, a genocide scholar and Holocaust scholar based in Sarajevo in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, he was a 2017 Auschwitz Institute Keen State College Global Fellow and has written extensively on genocide denial and atrocity prevention. Uh, he's a sought-after commentator on international media outlets and his articles cover far-right extremism and mass atrocities and have appeared in Haaretz, Newsweek and Foreign Policy. Hikmet, Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No, no problem. It's, it's great to have you here. So um, I've got you here today, uh, or you've come to join me today to talk about your recent book, uh, Torture, Humiliate, Kill, Inside the Bosnian Serb Camp System. And this was published this year in 2022 by the University of Michigan Press with the Ethnic Conflict uh, series. So I'm excited to talk to you more about the book and to learn about your the process that you've undertaken and some of the, um, the key things that our listeners should be looking out for as they seek out a copy of the book. Uh, so it would be helpful for our audience just to know a little bit more about yourself. So if you could just take a, a moment to introduce yourself and just tell us about your career and why particularly work in genocide studies and then Bosnia also. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I was born in Sarajevo, and uh, I spent my childhood in um, in several countries ab- abroad. Since my dad was a, was an academic, so I spent my most of my uh, uh, youth in Malaysia and Kuala Lumpur. Then I returned back to Sarajevo in two thousand two, and that's where I finished my high school uh, university, the University of Sarajevo, and uh, that's where I did my PhD. So basically, I'm I'm uh, I'm a local here. And uh, I've been dealing with Holocaust and genocide studies for a long time. It was always a part of our family interests, so to say, uh, for two main reasons. Firstly, uh, due to our family background, while well, family comes from eastern Bosnia, so that was a site of, of a lot of uh, persecutions throughout, throughout, throughout the last 100 years. And uh, the last one was, again, in 1982 when my... When my um, when my when my dad's family was 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 uh, uh, deported from 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 Visegrad from eastern Bosnia, so this has always been some sort of like personal personal story as well. Uh, the other thing is that I've, I've always loved uh, history since my dad was a legal historian. So uh, all, all of us in the family uh, were very, very much into into history and especially especially the recent history in Bosnia. So it was some sort of natural thing to, you know, just continue continue down the family lane and you know, um, concretely concretely deal with with issue of genocide studies. But my aim always was to write in in, in, in English so that uh, it could be much more available for the uh, international audience. Excellent, thank you, and it's really helpful to have, for us to have that insight on you know, your, your personal family connection, um, particularly to you know the eastern side of Bosnia, where it seems like a lot of the, the research took place for the book. So if, in a few words, can you tell us what the book is about? And we'll just dive into some of the detail after that. Yeah, so basically the book is about how the Boston Serb authorities in 1992 uh, set up a whole entire system of camps and detention centers, um, which were on a, on a very localized level, on a micro level. Um, in all of these very small uh, small towns uh, um, throughout, throughout the region which they were controlling. Um, so my theory is that uh, these these camps were set up by the local communities, 
by the local authorities with the uh, instructions and the help of the of the macro level and the and the meso level. So uh, basically, this, this book is is focusing on on several case studies uh, throughout the whole entire country through which uh, the the issue of of camps, how they were set up, uh, how these towns were were occupied, how they were, how these camps were set up, and what was the 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 treatment inside the camps and 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 afterwards the results that's that's the main the main subject of the of the of the whole entire book this was and this is actually the first book on camps in bosnia um so far there have there hasn't been anything written on on this topic um the, the books which have been written were mainly on a very uh, either personal testimonies memoirs or dealing with specific towns uh, uh per se so this was this is the first let's say history history of the camp system which existed in Bosnia, and uh, this year is the 30th anniversary of the camps. So, um, because the camps were set up in 1982, that's when they were uncovered by international journalists in, in August 1992. So, this is some sort of uh, also. Um, I'm happy that the book came out in, in on the on the 30th anniversary of the, of the discovery of the camps, because the discovery of the camps by the international journalists from um, mainly from Great Britain actually helped save the lives of, of the of the detainees uh, inside of these camps so so this is actually the first the first history of the camps and um, it, it it provides uh, um, an, an addition to the overall history of camps throughout you know since their establishment um, 150 years ago to, to today you know, today we have camps in, in Russia and in, in China and everywhere, everywhere else so um, you know, my book is basically uh, an insight into what happened in Bosnia in, in a couple of months in 1982. Mm, thank you. And so it it seems what you're saying is that this book and your research in particular is driving at a more systematic and even comparative analysis of, of how these camps came about, what happened in them and their impact. Yes, exactly. So the, the idea behind the book was to... Uh, since while I was researching the camps, I realized that most of the camps which existed throughout history, I mean, they are the same, uh, but the, the aims or the um, the intentions behind the camps usually differ. So, you know, uh, the camps in Bosnia were not, not the Nazi camps. Uh, they were not the Google, the, the, you know, the gulags in, in Stalin's uh, Soviet Russia. They were not, they were not the, the same camps as you have today in, 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 in China. For the Uyghurs, so I think that each camp system is unique for itself. Um, it all belongs to the same family tree, but they're all unique. So this is this is a book, especially about about the camp system in Bosnia. Mm. Excellent, thank you. Yeah, so you've raised uh, a couple of points here that we're going to try and come back to at, at different junctures. Uh, certainly, um, you. Know, I'd like for you to paint a little bit more of a historical picture in, of that family tree, and we'll. we'll come back to that in a moment and then the other thing that i would like us to return to as well is the um the issue you've raised around uh, you know who is doing this research and how extensive is it and is that research being done by bosnian scholars or others and and you know why does that matter so we'll, we'll come back to both of those points uh, later on uh, if that's okay um i wanted first of all to kind of draw um, and I don't often do this. I wanted to kind of draw into the title of the book. Uh, so torture, humiliate, kill. Uh, why choose these you know, sort of big keywords for the for the very sort of first impression of the book? Well, while I was researching the the camps, uh, you know, I did I did four of these case studies, and uh, I went through a lot of eyewitness testimony and uh, perpetrator documentation and. Uh, uh, you know, court judgments and so on. And uh, while I was reading this for, for a couple of years, the, the, the three main things which usually popped up, uh, which had similarities in, in all of these different locations were these three words, you know, torture, humiliate, kill. Um, so for that reason, I started, I, I decided that that would be the best option to, um, you know, to put it right out there in the title and to show how these how the aim of the, the camp system, or by, led by the Boston Serb authorities, had the aim of uh, you know torturing, humiliating, and killing. Um, it's inter- it's interesting because you know these camps were not that camps. These were not Nazi Nazi system camps. You know, um, 
the aim of the of, of the camps was was not not primarily to to murder um, everybody because you know if the Serbs wanted to do it they could have done it uh, in 1982, but. Uh, the, the thing which I realized which I, was actually that you know torturing humiliating the the detainees the prisoners being kept there um, was done intentionally in all of these uh, sites throughout the the Serb controlled areas so you know the best way to 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 somehow attract people to a can to, to a book is to be outright and and uh, you know concise and I think if somebody would ask me like can you explain the Boston camp system in three words? You know, these were this would be the three key words. You know, mm, mm. yeah, that's, that's really helpful again for us to hear that that really sort of um, you know, essential connection between you know all the documentation that you've gone through and then what jumped out from that. Um, and so you've raised here, you know, the thing that you know genocide scholars often like to talk about, discuss and disagree on is this issue of intent. So I'm wondering then in a sort of a broader way for you in the book, uh, how have you approached the concept of genocide and how has that approach to genocide then related to you know, this idea of, of concentration camps as you've studied them? Well, yeah, I mean, reading and, and researching the, the Boston genocide has been quite difficult because uh, there was no paper trail left by the perpetrators, so you don't have a signal, uh, a specific order, you know, ordering all the, all the executions and, and, and whatnot. But uh, what we could see from the results of, of the camp system uh, are actually is actually the intent behind the camps which were, which were set up there. Um the, the Boston Serb authorities used a very uh, Soviet-style um, uh, legal formalism in the way to, you know, drafting up a lot of documentations, which, which used a lot of newspeak, um, um, you know, synonyms for, for different documents and so on, for different terminology. So they, they wouldn't refer to, to Bosniak Muslims as, uh, you know, Bosniaks. They would refer to them as packages or, you know, uh, parcels and things like that, and uh, for the ICTY, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, for their investigators there, they needed to unwrap uh, this whole entire terminology which was used in order to understand these coded uh, messages which were being written in, in orders, but also in intercepted telephone calls. So uh, my approach here was to show, since the camps were not that camps. What I realized talking to a lot of survivors and reading the Irish testimonies was that um, they don't like to return back to their former homes. Um, they feel as if their homes, their former uh, hometowns have been hijacked by, 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 by the perpetrators. And this, was, this was interesting for me in the start because then I realized that... Uh, this is this was probably the the, the primary aim of the Boston Civil Authorities with with a with a um, not so significant amount of um, uh, murders in in some of these local communities because if you read some of these massacres you know you would see that you know 45, 50 people were killed in a village and so on and for the regular uh, judge in, sitting in the in the international tribunal in the Hague for him this isn't a huge number. Um, um, for, for him, you know, when you compare it to, to the Holocaust or to Rwanda and so on. But in this local community, somewhere in eastern Bosnia, 45 members of, of the local community is a large number. But also the, the pain, the traumatic pain which was inflicted by the perpetrators is even larger. And throughout the court's trials and so on, um, this traumatic experiences, uh, this inflicted trauma, which I claim is, is, is was intentional, uh, was never really uh, given attention. There was no attention given given to this uh, inflicted trauma. So uh, I wanted to focus on on how torture, humiliation uh, 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 by the perpetrators has actually left a long term uh, psychological effect on the on the survivors, and it can be seen exactly by the large demographic changes which were which were made in these towns. You know, like for example, in the case of Visegrad, you had a you had a population of you know ten thousand, twelve thousand Muslims before the war, 
And, uh, you know, in 1997, you only had a total of four uh, Bosniaks living there. So, you know, this tells you a lot about the huge dem- demographic changes, you know, entire community uprooted um, from, from their homes in a matter of a few months. And what was also always fascinating to me was to realize how is it possible that somebody who lives in a town for you know, 40, 50 years one day decides that it's better for him to live in, in, in Astoria, New York, than to return back to Vishigrad. Um, and, and for me, you know, talking to these people, I realized that actually the perpetrators have uh, forever discussed their, their, their uh, former homes to these people. You know? And this, this, is, this is a large psychological trauma which has been left on, on, the, on the people. So I, I coined this term collective traumatization, which I claim that was the primary aim of the Bosnian Serb camp system, through which, you know, by uh, killing a significant amount of uh, elite, elites and, and males and, uh, and uh, you know, important members of, of, of the community, by raping and sexually abusing uh, another part of the community, by destroying the, the local mosques and the graveyards and so on, um, and, and plus a, a number of other things, uh, this constitutes the, the collective traumatization, which led to something which, which uh, you know, forever uh, deleted this whole, whole entire community from, from them. And actually, the whole entire aspect of trauma was uh, the connection between trauma and genocide it's something which I had to work on uh, more because I know that this was a bit more uh, specific for, for genocide scholars. So there's a there's an explanation in, in, in one of my chapters on, on the correlationship between trauma and genocide, um, and that's where I where I cited Lemkin's uh, um, Lemkin's work, um, where he where he claimed that that the trauma was one of the primary aims of 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 the inflicted genocide on on during the Holocaust, and comparing this to, you know, um, the boarding schools in, in Canada and in the, in the U.S. and so on. So in a whole entire um, trauma, which, which, which in the end results in, in genocide in these, in these areas, because these communities will never be able to regenerate in, in these, in these uh, communities themselves. So in the case of Bosnia, the, the, the camp systems were the main uh, so-called fil- filtration centers for for genocide. So these were areas where you know, people would be killed, tortured, uh, uh, forced to do very menial jobs like you know uh, sweep the floors and clean up um, clean up rubbish and um, uh, swipe the, the blood off the floors and things like that. And um, uh, later on, they would be you know, deported and their house burns, burned down. And uh, this was actually done, the perpetrators, and I think this is one of the key aspects uh, in, in the Boston genocide and in the whole camp system. Most of the camp guards, most of the perpetrators knew their victims. The victims knew them as well. They were uh, you know, former professors from high schools. They were former colleagues. They were uh, classmates. They were, uh, you know, godfathers. They were, they were everything else. So, so this was one of the most specific things when, 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 a, when a crime of that, uh, of that scale, of that brutality is committed by somebody you know for for twenty, thirty years. That makes um, a reconciliation and 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 uh, the return back to your former homes almost impossible. Yeah, yeah. That's it's a really um, you know quite engaging. You know, explanation you've given us, you unpacked a lot right there. And so it seems like, you know, using some sort of Lemkin thinking here that the camps became not only a place to uh, create trauma and to sort of embed its long term effects, but then also as a way of you know, physically separating the community. And so these things then come together to form your approach to genocide, it seems. So just sort of then zooming back out a little bit more here, uh, you talk, you mentioned earlier about how, you know, the camps in Bosnia were not death camps, right? Because often, you know, sort of in, in popular culture and sort of broader uh, imagination, we think about camps, we think about the Holocaust inevitably. Um, so 
tell us about you know that sort of this historical brief historical survey that you engaged in around camps and how are camps different and why does that difference matter well yeah i mean the the most important thing about camps to know is that they they evolve over time uh the whole concept of camps is basically the same but uh, they are different so um the first camps which were set up in Cuba or, um, you know, by, 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 by the Spanish general some 120, 30 years ago was different, uh, had the aim of, you know, separating physically the community from the insurgents. Later on, the same concept was used during the Boer Wars in South Africa. Um, then, then you know, we have, uh, you know, throughout history, I'm not going to go through each and every single case. I, I explained this in the book, but... Uh, the highlight of the camp system was, of course, the Holocaust, where uh, you know you had several of these camps, which were which were the, the exact uh, uh, annihilation camps, the death camps. We had ga- gas chambers and so on. Um, then, in the case of Bosnia, Bosnia is the first uh, case of establishing camps in in Europe after the Second World War, and uh, this was this is interesting because in in the case of Bosnia near. Uh, Near Bosnia, we had Yasinovats in the Second World War, where the Ustasha regime from Croatia uh, set up set up a camp for uh, Jews, Serbs, and Roma from the former Yugoslavia, where uh, the majority of the Serbs were, were from this area were uh, systematically uh, and very brutally murdered, and this played a huge role later on in the, in the in the Serbian uh, nationalist mythology and the rise of Serb nationalism in the 1990s. Uh, so this this way of uh, you know organizing a very let's say um, uh, the, the the camps in Bosnia were not as well organized physically as you could imagine them being right now in in, in China or in uh, in the Holocaust and so on. These were very makeshift uh, primitive camps where you had you know, the Bosnian Serb perpetrators were in their early stages of the war. So they didn't set up, they didn't build new camps. They didn't, they didn't build an Auschwitz, they didn't build uh, a Dachau. They used existing facilities, such as schools, such as sports halls and so on, where these became, um, you know, torture chambers. Something similar to, to, to you know, the Khmer Rouge uh, torture chambers in, in Cambodia. So these existing facilities, uh, or 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 like the police military police um, facilities in in Argentina, so these facilities were actually used as, as um, you know brutal um, uh, camps, brutal detention facilities, and uh, the the Bosnian Serbs never really built a new a new building per se. So they use existing facilities to do so. And I don't think that the Boston Serbs ever wanted to create a larger long-term camp system. I think that this was their aim was to uh, process and filter people through a small amount of time as quickly as possible, and to you know kick them out of the region as, as soon as possible. So, so this differs from from the aim of the, for example, of the Nazis in the Second World War, where where you had uh, the intention to kill each and every single person. Um, you know, maybe the Serb perpetrators in Bosnia would have done the same thing if they had the large amount of um, um, personnel, which, which could do so if if they didn't have you know CNN and BBC going around trying to trying to enter the camps and so on and so forth. So they uh, they knew very well what camps were, what camps meant, uh, what was the aim of camps. They even had the, the racial um, ideology behind it. They, they considered Bosniak Muslims as uh, uh, you know, um, biological scum, basically. Uh, so, so for that for that reason, you know, they had all the all the uh, necessary uh, background to to com- commit such a large scale, uh, you know, uh, killing process. But in in the in the re- end end result, I think that they wanted to basically in a very short amount of time inflict uh, such a large amount of trauma to the local population basically make them uh, some sort of uh, the living dead, basically, because most of these people who, who survived the camps are uh, not able, usually not able to, 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 uh, to uh, reintegrate into, 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 into the, the, the society and to regenerate in their local communities. And uh, we see that today, like in, in the case of Ukraine, a lot of these traumas have returned back to, to local Bosnians living living uh, living here, 
living in, in the country. This, uh, the whole, all the scenes from Ukraine have uh, re-traumatized them. And of course, you can when you compare this to, to China or to um, um, you know right now the filtration camps in, in Russia and so on, uh, you can see that, that there is a difference. Like in the case of China, you have you have new set up built camps with the aim of uh, controlling the whole entire uh, population of some sort of re-education camps with with a large amount of uh, rape and sexual violence, uh, um, probably some sort of medical experiments and so on and so forth. This wasn't in the case of Bosnia. The the Bosnian Serbs were much more... uh, uh, They wanted to get rid of the population as soon as possible, basically. They wanted it done as as quickly as possible. And... and, uh, Brutality and uh, something which I also found very interesting. You had these ceremonial murders, of public executions in camps, which which you can see in other in other areas, um, in other areas throughout throughout uh, in other genocides. And it's fascinating because at the same time you had the Rwanda genocide occurring in 1984, and you didn't have camps uh, or set up there. So uh, it, told, it shows that the Bosnian Serb uh, authorities were very much uh, knowledgeable about the camp systems. And in one case, I mentioned this in the in the conclusion of my book, one of the local politicians in northwestern Bosnia, when he when he was asked about the camps, he said, you know, well, Stalin and Churchill, everybody had camps, so why can't we have camps as well? You know, so this shows that perpetrators learn learn from each other. So and that's I think one of the one of the main points which I wanted to show in my book. Mm. Yeah, and I, th- I thank you for that. And I think that you know, as you said at the the beginning there t- in your response, that you know, war as a context is is really key, particularly then if you're arguing that camps served one of the the main purposes of of filtering, but getting people out of the area that they'd lived in. And I I did you know pick up in your in your very you know effective survey, right? Even um, camp, uh, camps that targeted the so-called Mau Mau rebellion in Kenya and the use of public executions, and I thought that was an, an interesting comparison. Um, so I wanted to uh, hear from you a little bit more about the um, the four cases, uh, the four locations that you you focused on. So we have uh, Visegrad, uh, Priedor, um, Bialina and um, Bilecia. So how did these four camps contrast with each other? Were there any trends or significant differences that you saw across the, the four cases? Uh, well, firstly, to, to say that these, these four locations were uh, chosen up, upon their geographical uh, and, and geographical and political uh, position. So um, right before the war started uh, in 1982, in 1981, the Bosnian Serb authorities, uh, local communities and so on, they formed so-called uh, autonomous regions. These were like a prelude to the establishment of the Bosnian Serb uh, entity, the Bosnian Serb Republic and uh, the separatist republic. So I chose... Uh, these four cases according to these former um, autonomous regions because later on they just uh, um, uh, spilled over and, and, and connected into one large territory. So and since my, my theory is that the local population, the local authorities were the ones who set up who set up the, the camps and so on, the people who set up these autonomous regions in 1981 was, were the same people who were in power in 1992. So I chose these four four towns. Predor is in north northwestern Bosnia. It's one of the sites of one of the most infamous uh, camps uh, camp systems which existed. Vilna is in north uh, eastern Bosnia. Uh, Visegrad is in uh, eastern Bosnia, and Bilicia is in east Herzegovina. It's uh, almost um, almost right at the at the eastern eastern border of, of Bosnia with with Montenegro. So I wanted to show how um, these four towns and basically on all different corners of the country had almost the same identical um, fate in in 1982. 
And uh, what was fascinating for me when I was when I was researching these four case studies is that almost at the same time, so from April, May 1992 up to uh, August, September 1992, at the same areas, the same towns, uh, you had almost the identical treatment of of detainees in these four areas, which shows actually a pattern of of uh, the same same identical. Um, the same pattern and the blueprint for for this genocidal campaign. Now, what was what was interesting about about these trends is that the, the in my opinion, the demographic position of these towns and the amount of Bosniaks living in these towns had a large effect on the the level and the amount of uh, crimes which were committed. So, for example, Visegrad and Prijedor had almost fifty percent of the population who were Bosniaks. Um, before the war. So in 1991, the, the population census was made in the country and uh, the Bosnian Serb perpetrators, they use this, uh, they use a theory which is today very popular and that's the great, great replacement theory. They, they, they claim that uh, the, the Bosnian Muslims were going to demographically become a majority in a couple of years and that they are going to replace the 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 ordinary people, the the, the so-called uh, uh, people who had the right to land in, in those areas, and for this reason, they needed to be, uh, you know, uh, kicked out of this region. So, uh, in Prijedor and in Vishgrad, almost fifty percent of the population were Bosniaks, while in Bielna and in Bilica, uh, the the population was much much lower. So, in for example, in Bielna, it was around thirty percent. In Bilica, it was less than ten percent. Uh, however, the, the situation with the population was almost identical in these in these areas, and of course, the most brutal crimes were committed in Prijedor, in Prijedor and in Visegrad. In Prijedor, you had entire camps for entire families. Basically, these were open air, open air, improvised camps where people were brought in. You know, uh, soldiers were roaming around the camps. I'm concretely talking about Ternopolia camp. Where soldiers were roaming around, raping women, uh, you know, executing, uh, beating men, and so on, uh, while their family members were, were sitting there, whole entire families and children. While in the case of Visegrad, you had uh, you, you had a very specific, uh, sadistic approach where a special camp was set up only for women and for girls. This was the Vilna Vlas Hotel. Um, a former spa hotel, which was which was very popular before the war, almost two hundred women and girls were brought there, and they were systematically raped for almost three months uh, at at that camp. So you had uh, a lot of different examples going on there, and my, my in my opinion, the larger um, the larger the, the Bosnian population was, the more brutal the crimes were. For example, in, in the case of Vienna, you didn't have a lot of. Uh, uh, a lot of uh, executions, but you did have the the. I mean, you had a lot of executions, but you also you also had a lot of uh, the camp. The camp, which was the largest camp, which was set up in Vienna, uh, was used as a sort of let's say regional transit camp. So people were brought in from other towns to this larger camp, and then from there sent over to to other areas. And you had a you had a different approach towards the local population there because. In my opinion, it also had an effect on who was in charge uh, in, of the local authorities uh, there. So in the case of Bielina, for example, you had uh, people who were forced into converting to, to, to Orthodox Christianity in, 19, in 1993 and 94. So this was a different approach, something which didn't, didn't exist in, in, in Priedor, Vishirad, or anywhere else. In the case of Bielica, Bielica was one of the most interesting because... When I started researching it, you know, you had a population of less than 10% before the war of, of Muslims living there. So you wouldn't really expect a lot, a lot of war. I mean, the the, the population, the Bashan population living in Bilicia wasn't that significant. However, what I realized was that actually these men were kept almost the longest uh, in 1982. They were kept there from, from April, May up to September, October 1982. So basically for, for a for a couple of months, the police in village used, you know, had around forty to fifty of these men kept in in, in a police station in village, and they would just go on every day beating up the people as much as possible, using them for different, you know, um, uh, 
they weren't they weren't even exchanged. They weren't even offered for exchange. They weren't even offered for offered for ransom. They were just being being there, uh, kept locked up inside the police station, uh, and then in the basement of the police station, just beaten on a daily basis. So you can see here a, a very sadistic approach towards towards the, the, the detainees. And uh, what I would say is that every town in, in Bosnia had the same pattern of, of violence in the case of the camps, but you could look at every different town with a, with a very specific uh, a specific trend, basically. Hmm. So you've highlighted a few different sort of aspects to each of these locations. Um, you know, there's the presence of these local committees that you described earlier on, um, types and groups of prisoners, and then obviously, you know, people who are staffing the prison and engaging in the torture. Uh, and then, of course, you know, as we know, right, you get further up to what you describe as the macro level. You have, you know, Bosnian Serb military leadership sort of, you know, directing the whole effort. What Perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about your assessment of that relationship between these macro and micro levels, uh, especially where the outcomes and the impact of the violence has, it seems like it has a bit of a relationship with the proportion of, of the population that is, um, you know, is Bosniak. So I, the question is, is, you know, what is that? What is your assessment of that relationship between the macro and the micro? Do we see, you know, some sort of direct instruction on how to run and conduct the camps from the macro coming down? Or is there something more dynamic that you saw going on here? Well, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, earlier there's no paper trail ordering uh, and executions or torture and everything else. But... Uh, what you could see from the ICTY testimonies of uh, former um, former high-level uh, Serb politicians and so on, you could place together some sort of um, pattern showing the organizational structure of these camps. So, in my opinion, the the the, uh, the macro-level uh, area of, 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 of the political establishment of the Boston Serbs was the one which ordered and gave the specific instructions on on establishment of camps. These camps were later on established, uh, you know, legally by either the police or by the, by the Boston Serb army, usually by the police on, on the local levels. Um, they were operated by the local levels, by the macro or by the meso, uh, by, by the meso uh, uh, level. So, uh, by, sorry, by the meso, by the micro level. So these were either controlled by the by the you know police station, police uh, ministry of police in, in Piedor, or by the you know um, uh, some sort of uh, intergovernment agency in in, in 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 the autonomous region of Krajina, or sometimes you didn't even have a specific order uh, ordering the establishment of these camps. These camps were ordered. Um, by, by verbal uh, direction. So in the case of Vilna Vlas, there is no documentation in Vishigrad on the establishment of these camps, but you could realize who was behind the camps by seeing who the guards were, you know, whether they were military or not. And in some cases, you had this uh, correlation between both military and police, which was some sort of you know, combined, mixed, mixed approach. And what was interesting is that these uh, macro-level um, uh, Politicians like Radovan Karadzic, they they never entered, they never came to to, to these camps, they never visited these camps. Uh, but in the case of these meso level, uh, uh, so 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 mid, the mid level officials, they would visit the camps to see how the camps look like. So the, we have the best example in Priador where we have you know Radislav Berjanin, the president of the autonomous autonomous region of Krajina, who comes and inspects the camps in Priador and says, you know, this is a very good job. Um, they're going. They're doing a great job in, in facilitating this war and things like that. So we have we have concrete examples of of uh, these macro level uh, politicians visiting and inspecting the camps to see how things are, are are going and how are things functioning. But most importantly, we have these micro level uh, officials like the police chiefs, like uh, local commanders. Uh, Going around and, and, and inspecting, visiting, operating, ordering uh, executions inside the camps. 
So um, again, it's it's very difficult to setting up the whole entire history of, of these camps without having the documentation. Probably most of the documentation doesn't exist. The the either they were, it was destroyed uh, right after the Serbs realized that the ICTY that somebody is going to uh, you know answer for their crimes or uh, in some cases these camps were done in a very um, let's say verbal verbal uh, way because they these were all communist or uh, educated personnel so the police the police and the military came from a Yugoslav army they came from a Yugoslav uh, system they knew very well that written orders uh, should not exist you know everything was done verbally by telephone so uh, so this was or by coded language so so this is one of the greatest the greatest difficulties that we have in, in, in establishing uh, establishing these, these connections but what does happen is that you can see these direct uh, connections between the the macro level and 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 uh, the, the the meso level and the micro level so this is something which I try to show in my in my in my uh, case studies especially in the case of Priador Priador had the most the largest amount of paper trails showing these uh, these different um, and news reports also showing these different different examples of cooperation between these three levels of government. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, it's really helpful to see again, right, how those levels connect with each other, and and importantly, as you know, right, the um, that word of mouth and those existing military structures in shaping this. So I wanted to shift gears a little bit and hear from you about some of the research and field work uh, that you engaged in. What was your experience like with this and what were some of the challenges that you encountered? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I believe that in order to you know, write about a specific area, you always need to go and visit, visit these, and just to get a sense of the feeling of the, of the area where you live, where, which you're writing about. So I've been visiting uh, these areas even before I was doing my research because I was always in some way connected with with these areas. Either I have friends there living, or you know, I would go there for a commemoration and so on. Talk to talk to survivors, or uh, you know, have friends who who survived these these uh, camps. So I visited this area several times. I went to I went to a couple of these camps before. Um, and, and it was interesting to see how these sites uh, evolved over time. You know, um, this is something which, which later on, I think I mentioned it, uh, in my book as well, how, how, how these areas were not memorialized in, in a later sense. So most of these uh, sites, which were used, used as you know, torture chambers later on, very quickly regained their original purpose. I think the most shocking part for me was going to um, going to the elementary school in Visegrad, where uh, you saw kids in school. Um, you know, the school which was which was used as as a, as a detention center where a lot of rapes were conducted in the biology biology classroom, where uh, you know people were executed in a ceremonial fashion, and so on. Uh, you see kids going around there today, you know, learning in school and so on, and there's no memorial to commemorate these victims. Um, another case, I visited the Vilna Vlas Hotel, which um, which was used as a, as a rape camp for, for women in, 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 in Vishigrad. And there, uh, this hotel operates today. You can find a trip advisor. You can book a, book a, book a night in the hotel. Um and when I was there, I saw that, that the local uh, Serbs were organizing a, a birthday party for for their you know, five year old son. I think this was this is something which which really devastated me, realizing that uh, you know these whole entire uh, sites of, of torture of trauma have been entirely hijacked by by these new. Um, New people living living in these areas, and you know this is this, we're talking about very very small communities. Which, if you want to find out what your neighbor had for breakfast, you can find out. So these people usually usually know what happened in these camps, you know, which is it's not something which is unknown. Uh, and I think this is very shocking for me to to realize that somebody would bring their five year old kid to celebrate his birthday party in in a hotel which was used for mass rape of, of women and kids. 
So, you know, going to going to these sites exactly, just, you know, just sit down and have a coffee or just observe, um, it really helped me out a lot with with, uh, with my writing, you know, because it, it helped me develop this whole entire uh, theory on, on, on traumatization. So uh, I think that fieldwork is a, a very important part of, of this kind of research. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating the way you describe, you know, going to these sites and seeing you know, or standing in, you know, a level of erasure, right, as you're at the hotel or the elementary school. I don't want to sort of distract us from talking about the book too much, but I was going to ask you about kind of the, the state of public memory um, and obviously, you know, sort of ongoing contention around this history or its erasure in, uh, in Bosnia-Herzegovina. So is this generally the case that these sites are, continued subjects of erasure is there any level of memorialization and and how how do survivors connect with these sites or is that connection not there at all well i mean uh when, when the war ended in 1995 with the dayton peace accords uh these areas which i have been uh, researching they all ended up in the hands of the boston serbs so this was today this is known as the boston serb republic or republika srpska so this is a whole entire entity of, of Bosnia, which has its own uh, flag, anthem, insignia, um, uh, police, you know, government, and so on. So basically, they have all the elements of a state except for international recognition, and they don't have an army currently. So uh, this is something like a Transnistria in, in, in Bosnia, or a Nagorno-Karabakh, or something like that. So... Um, of course, in these areas, you wouldn't expect the local government to allow you to set up a, a memorial site or um, a, a memor- memorial at all inside of, inside of these buildings because, you know, uh, the local communities are the ones which allow you, which give you permission to set up a, a, a memorial. So, uh, in a majority of these sites in eastern Bosnia, in Republika Srpska, there is no memorial in these sites, in these camps. So I mentioned Vilna Vlas, I mentioned the elementary school, uh, I mentioned Bilica, and so on. None of these sites are commemorated, none of these sites are marked. So if you would go there today, you would not realize that these were sites of, of, of executions or rapes or whatever. So uh, the only area which has a memorial center is Srebrenica. And this was something which was imposed by the international community in Bosnia. So they, they were the ones who forced, basically, a law uh, stating that, that this territory, this property, is now state state Bosnian law and not the law, not, not the property of Republika Srpska. And this, this is how the the memorial center in Srebrenica was set up. Uh, so in all of these other sites, it's, it's, it's basically hijacked by 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 uh, by the local community. They have a new approach to these sites. There is no memorial whatsoever about about these sites, and. Uh, the survivors are right now setting up alternative ways to to commemorate these sites. That they would establish, like um, in, as part of their graveyards, they would set, they would set up a memorial center inside their graveyards, which would commemorate all the victims from those local communities. So the survivors have, have now tried to find a way to alternatively uh, commemorate these these areas. So if they cannot comm- commemorate these sites in you know, in Prior at each specific, each specific camp, then they set up these small memorial centers in their local communities, uh, in their local villages, uh, almost uh, exclusively at the sites where their loved ones are, are, are buried. They would just set up small memorial centers there with some educational um, uh, exhibits or, or things like that. And I... This brings me to um, the inclusion you make in the book of a series of photos, uh, and I it and it helps to visualize these things. But I suppose it, in an, in another way as well, it seems like you've included these photos as a way of sort of you know giving sort of witness to these spaces, whereas in other ways they are not. Um, so I was wondering if you had some. A, a comment or two on you know why you include the pictures and and how they you know, what the intended purpose was there. Yeah, this is. Uh, I mean, I wanted to do this for several reasons. Firstly, I wanted to give a give a sense to the reader that these are normal everyday 
sites. So this were not, you know, this is this is not uh, a new setup camp of, of sorts. Secondly, I wanted to show the readers this, the the state of, of these of these uh, former camps today. So if you look at, at the pictures inside, you'll see these very normal operating functioning buildings. Uh, and thirdly, I wanted to uh, document these sites because over time, uh, some of these sites are repainted, uh, bulldozed. You know, a new investment comes up, the, the whole entire area is, is, is destroyed, or, or the windows are changed and things like that. So, uh, one of my friends from Poland, Pavel, he he uh, he went around Bosnia taking photographs of these of these sites. Uh, and and he was kind enough to, to give me the, the, the photographs. So I'm really a huge fan of his work. So um, he, he he gave me permission to to, to reuse uh, to use actually these, these photographs for my book. And this is a way how to document these sites because I'm not sure whether in you know fifty if in twenty fifty years time we'll be able to witness these sites um, as they are right now. And also, secondly, uh, the question is, what will happen um, since since these sites don't have a don't have a memorial uh, plaque or, or or a monument at all? Um, since you can't find them on a GPS, you know, if somebody wants to visit some of these sites tomorrow as a researcher, they can uh, recognize these photographs when they are there walking around the streets and so on. So, you know. Including these photographs had had a, had a, had a multi purpose actually, and and so I'm, I'm guessing that there's a way for uh, your readers to access a, a broader collection of the pictures beyond the ones that you've included. Oh yeah, it's 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 available online. I will. Uh, I can include the link in the uh, description of our interview here. So. Yes, Pavel has a Pavel has a really great uh, project which he's doing on on on, on this site. So I will I will include the link and they can have a look at all the other photographs. Fantastic. So. Uh, before we wrap up here, uh, I was going to ask you briefly about the ICTY cases that it sounds like you made use of. Um, I wonder if you could just briefly tell us how you approached those that that documentation and how you used it in the book. Uh, yes, yeah, so the ICTY documentation was actually one of the one of the main uh, sources of, of, of my writing. The ICTY has all these documents uh, which they use in trials. They have them available online, so you can you know register and use uh, these exhibits, uh, court. Court documents, which which some of them which have been seized from the perpetrators, so you can find documentation from the Bosnian army, military, uh, police, political establishments, and so on, and also from all, all the other cases. And usually, this is a large amount of documents. So, for example, in the case of uh, Karadzic, uh, I went through I think almost eleven thousand documents, searching through each and every document, searching to see if there, if there are camps mentioned anywhere. Uh, th- this is th- this is a, a large collection of documents, which which is very valuable and through which you could write for the next, I think, one hundred years. People can write books about 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 uh, different topics, just focusing on this documentation. So this was this was publicly available. The other thing which I was using was I uh, uh, court of BH, the Bosnian National Court here in Bosnia. Their uh, judgments. Which, which they because uh, once the ICTY stopped their court cases, then the local courts took over, and of course only the Bosnian courts have been doing some sort of work. But however, however, we were not able. I was not be, being given uh, access to the exhibits, the documents which were used as uh, evidence in the courts. So the the Bosnian court is not as open as the ICTY is, uh, and this is something which we've been fighting over here in Bosnia to get access to all of these. Uh, documents, pictures, videos, and so on, witness testimonies, uh, and and so far the the Boston courts have not been uh, eager to to share this kind of um, this kind of evidence. So currently, there, uh, in the, my book is mainly focused on the ICTY documentation, on the court judgments, on the 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 Boston court judgments, and so on. And I wanted to include all of these things because for Western. Um, 
foreign researchers and writers. They mainly focus on specific topics and they use, use only ICTY documentation. I, I wanted to include also the Bosnian court system because most of these judgments are in Bosnian language. They are not available in English and many people don't know where to find them and how to find them and so on. So I wanted to include this aspect as well, um, you know, to, 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 to uh, give insight in, 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 in their findings and, and their documentation as well. So uh, a variety of different sources were used. Basically, whatever I could get my hands on, um, I, I, tried to, I tried to use it as, as long as possible. One of the positive aspects was that I've been dealing with this topic for a long time. So, you know, when I started writing, writing this book, uh, uh, I really had a lot of things already ready there, you know, for a long time, accumulating different uh, documentations and, and interviews with people. I didn't, I didn't use specifically one of the reasons I didn't, one of the things that I didn't, we didn't, which I didn't use in my book was interviews with, with survivors. Uh, I, I did this intentionally. Because what I realized talking to some of my friends uh, who survived the camps was that over time, as time passed by, you know, 30 years has passed, has passed through. It's a long time. Um, if you look at their testimonies from 1982 or from 1995, 97, 98, they're much different from, uh, from today. People have, uh, you know, it's, it's logical. People have grown older. Uh, they have forgotten some specific dates. They've forgotten names. You know, imagine imagine people have left for, from from Piedramen to the U.S. to live in here, living in the U.S. for thirty years, and now somebody asks you about some specific date or or um, or name and things like that. So what I realized was actually the safest thing I could do was use uh, eyewitness testimony, which was given at the Hague Tribunal. Because I realized that this was this would be the best possible option, since these were eyewitness testimonies who have been um, cross-examined by 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 both the the defense counsel and by the prosecution. Because I wanted to make a, a book and a, an account of the camp system as accurate as possible. So I didn't want tomorrow somebody to accuse me of being, uh, you know. Uh, it's always difficult when you're a Bosnian writing about Bosnia uh, because then you can be accused of being, you know, impartial or um, one-sided and things like this. So I, I specifically used those witness testimonies which were um, you know, deemed as 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 accurate as uh, as in good faith as you know um, uh, eyewitness testimony which didn't have any 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 major changes or or which were taken as, as very credible by the persecution, by the judges. So that was my aim in the end, to, to, to give a testimony not only to, to the court system itself, but also, and this is something which I in, insisted on, I, I mentioned the names and surnames of all the victims, which I, could, which I could find in the court judgments, but also of all the perpetrators. Now, this is a way in how to um, give memory to the victims themselves, you know, um, to, to bring back... Um, the identities of these people, you know, the, the, the people who, who were killed, people who were tortured. I wanted to somehow, uh, you know, uh, give them a space which they which they deserve in academia. Mm. You mentioned a moment ago uh, this tension that shows up in other sort of country-specific areas of genocide studies or the study of mass atrocity in history and other disciplines. What I wonder if maybe one of the last things we could talk about here is you know, what your assessment of the state of your research on um, Bosnia is, right? And is this largely the preserve of you know, researchers and writers that are working outside of the country and, and don't have a connection? Or is this something now that, you know, a, a new generation of, of Bosnian writers have sort of started to grapple with a little bit more? Uh, well, you know, for, for a long time, Bosnia was very was was interesting. It was an interesting area for research. Uh, basically, whoever was was doing research, I would meet up with them when they were in Bosnia, uh, as a sort of you know connection or fixer or translator and so on. But what I realized in recent years is that you know, as new conflict zones are you know popping out throughout the world, Bosnia has lost uh, interest. Uh, I mean, the, the whole research about Bosnia is lower down and 
people usually focus on very, uh, I would say, topics which have been already done, have been done so far. You know, like uh, Srebrenica or Priador or, uh, or or they've been dealing with, with post-genocide effects, you know, like the, the, the social effects of camp survivors or, you know, uh, trauma or uh, PTSD and things like that. So, so we don't have a lot of work focusing specifically on the crimes itself. Uh, I think that that's one of the biggest uh, um, issues I have with, with foreign research here. Here, I mean, research conducted by foreigners in Bosnia, which is under- understandable. On the other high, and on the other hand, we have local Bosnians who uh, find this topic very uninteresting. Um, even though it's 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 kind of you know strange to say so, but uh, you know people would usually tend to, to deal with topics which, which um, you know don't cause any stress or, or whatever. So uh, this topic has not been the the, the 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 subject of major research so far. I think that's that's one of one that was one of my biggest shocks when I started doing my literature re- re- review for my book. When I realized that most of the things which have been written in Bosnia are is is um, not usable at all in my in my research, um, but right now what I'm what I'm happy to see is that there's a young generation of Bosnians uh, in Bosnia, but also in the diaspora. So usually second generation Bosnians uh, who are living outside of the country, who uh, who are living also in Bosnia, who know the language, who uh, know English who know how to research specifically and, and, and correctly, and they're becoming more and more interested in this topic. And that's something which is really, 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 uh, really makes me very happy to see, you know, this young generation of kids uh, born after, you know, uh, born after the war and who are interested interested in this topic. So this really gives me hope that, that uh, this kind of, uh, these kind of researchers will be able to, to conduct much more better in-depth, in-depth research than it has been done so far. Uh, this book, which I've written, is the second book which has been written in English by a local Bosnian scholar in the last uh, 20 years. So this shows to us, the the, the first one was by Edina Becirovic, called uh, Genocide on the River Drina. Uh, it's published by Yale University Press in 2013, 2012-2013. So, so this is the second book. So it took almost 10 years for, for a new book to come out. And hopefully, you know, we won't need to wait another, another 10 years for a local Bosnian scholar to, to write a book in English. And I think this is important because the level of genocide denial, historical revisionism that we have today, which is not only narrowed down to Bosnia, but also worldwide, uh, shows that this kind of research, these kind of books are more and more important in order to counter this level of denial. Mm. That's really insightful. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah, so hopefully there's not another 10 year interval, right? <laughs> With this new generation of scholars that are coming up. So just to wrap up now, I wonder if you might be able to share with us something you're working on now or any projects that you anticipate in the near future. Well, well currently I've just finished up a new research on the Roma genocide in, in Bosnia in the Second World War, which I published uh, as part of a report for the Auschwitz Institute in, in based in New York City. So that's out a few days ago. Uh, There's something that I've been working on in the last couple of months. Right now I'm, I'm working on a, on, a, on a project on the far right in Bosnia and in the region. So I'm, I'm analyzing their uh, the movements, the symbols used, their connection with genocide denial and things like that. So right now I'm focused a bit on, on, on the far right in, in the region and worldwide. Excellent. That- sounds very interesting and um we'll certainly you know invite our listeners to follow you and to to see you know what's coming next especially with that um intriguing research on your right-wing actors so at the new books network we often sort of round off thanking you for your time of course which has been very generously shared um we also ask if there are any particular books or films or even plays that have shaped your scholarship and your research that you might recommend to some of our listeners. Yeah, so one of the one of the one of the movies which I would recommend is a recent one which I watched on Netflix. It's called Munich: The Edge of War. It's a really interesting book on how uh, 
uh, Hitler prepare, prepared to invade Czechoslovakia, and uh, it actually talks about the lead up, the lead up to the, to the war and to the Holocaust in in, in 1938. So this this is interesting, interesting because it's not only a typical Holocaust uh, movie, it shows a lot about the background. Uh, the, the, the appeasement process of, of, of uh, European countries towards Hitler uh, when he was trying to annex different areas in, 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 in Europe. Another book which I want to recommend is by, by a good uh, colleague of mine called Jelena Subotic. Um, her book, which came out uh, two years ago, which I've only come to read right now, it's called Yellow Star, Red Star, uh, Holocaust Remembrance After Communism. Uh, this talks about uh, Holocaust memory uh, in Europe after after the fall of communism and basically in communist countries. So it's 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 really um, it shows a lot of different uh, um, uh, aspects, you know, of how again denialism, historical revisionism, uh, the fight for memory, the fight for for preserving memory in these in these areas. Mm. Great. Thank you for sharing those. They sound quite interesting. Uh, so thank you very much again, Hikmet, for your time. We encourage uh, all of our listeners here who've uh, taken the time to hear our conversation with you to go out and check out your book again, published this year with the University of Michigan Press, as Torture, Humiliate, Kill Inside the Bosnian Serb Camp System. So thanks, Hikmet, for your time, and I wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you, Chris, so much. And I wish you the best as well.